Welcome once again to Father's Princess Universe at the intersection where faith and reason get together and make a lot of sense, actually. And I'm Doug Keck. I'm your gatekeeper here, coming to you from Irondale, Alabama, the mothership where it all began, thanks to our great foundress, Mother Angelica. Email your questions to us at Spitzer's universe at ew10.com because this is a Q&A show and check out all of Father Spitzer's websites magiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com and spitzercenter.org and as we always remind you Spitzer's universe is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and the EW10 on demand page both places and during this year of Eucharistic Revival, be sure to check out all of our programs on the Eucharist. Very important, always important to Mother Angelica, that's for sure. Shows like Deacon Halberg Sivers and Father Brian Milady's The Eucharist, A Taste of Heaven on Earth, and Scott Hahn's The Lamb's Supper, a classic, will deepen your faith in the most blessed sacrament. And it's always free, and it's always on demand, and it's always available 24 hours a day. And we wanna make sure you're aware of that. And again, as I mentioned before, we'll be answering your viewer questions on today's program. And with that, we'll turn to the answer man himself, Father Spitzer. And uh, it's great being with you uh, this week again. Great to be with you too, Doug. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. And Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us. The blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you today to send your Holy Spirit down upon us to inspire, guide, and protect us so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Always good to be with you, Father. Let's get to our first question. We've got a lot of... Uh, viewer uh, questions to get to. And first up, and a very interesting one, and I think a challenging one. Dear Father Spitzer, it's time you learn the truth about transgender people. There are many people who have characteristics of both genders, both on the outside and or the inside of their bodies. I believe that those who identify as transgender are really intersexed. There are many people like that, but because of the social stigma, it is vastly underreported. It is my belief that those who experience gender dysphoria are actually intersexed. Otherwise, how could one explain why someone would choose gender dysphoria when they could just as easily choose gender euphoria instead? This is physiologically based, get my point, and this is Maria who's got, I guess, some concerns about some of the perspectives we presented on the program. Well, Maria, I, uh, I get your point, I hope, uh, but I would have to say that your point disagrees uh, fundamentally with a very good study done by two professors at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, and um, uh, those studies actually show that there is not any biological evidence um, whatsoever for a man being trapped in a woman's body or a woman being trapped in a man's body. And that's why the Zucker and Bradley studies, again, a very good study. I mean, if you're citing me a study which you want me to consider, mm -hmm. please, uh, again, do so. But the Zucker and Bradley studies say that uh, in, you know, in view of the fact that there does not seem to be any biological linkage uh, to transgender feelings, the so-called intersect uh, um, uh, proposition that mm -hmm. you 
you made uh, what might be the cause of gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And as I have explained many times on the program, they have identified three areas that they think, and it's generally a nexus, uh, uh, that is to say, one or two, uh, possibly all three areas uh, may be involved. Mm -hmm. The first area is uh, sexual abuse or physical abuse, mm -hmm. um, which seems to have occurred in 40 to 60 percent of people who experience a very significant gender dysphoria. The second uh, area is uh, anxiety in the household. Uh, again, I've tried uh, to explain this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, basically, what happens is if there's considerable anxiety in the household, even when the child is two or three years old, mm -hmm. the child in you know right not doesn't have a front, uh, uh, well-developed frontal cortex. The child begins to reason that the reason that people are are anxious, that they're angry, et cetera, in the household, it's because of him or her. Mm -hmm. So uh, what uh, that person thinks is, well, wait a minute. If they're angry at me, what have I done? I've been a good boy or good girl. What's going on here? And normally, if it's the mother's anger that's predominant, it's normally a boy who will say, oh, mom's angry because I'm the wrong. She would have been happier if I'd have been a girl. Mm -hmm. So I'm the guy to blame. So if I just had been born, um, you know, a girl, everything in the house would be okay. Mommy be okay, daddy be okay, etc. Mm. And you know, with the girl, it's the father. Mm. If he's the angry one, right, then essentially, um, you know, the girl makes the same reasoning. Now, the third area is latent uh, homosexual activity, uh, or latent homosexual, um, uh, excuse me, not activity, latent homosexual, um, um, you know, uh, desires. And right, so, yeah, right. uh, uh, tendencies as yeah. well, and those things uh, may also play into it, but it, in and of itself, it's not, it, it cannot be and is not a single criterion. There are other reasons, too, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, seem to be a little bit more tangential, though they could be important. So if a mother is dressing a little boy up in girls' clothes and, you know, and mm -hmm. constantly reinforces what a nice little girl he looks like, and you go, well, what mother does that? You'd be surprised mm -hmm. uh, that actually happens, uh, that the mother actually can dress up the little boy in girls' clothes. They think it's very cute or something of that nature, but in point of fact, it is creating a, uh, you know, a cascade mm -hmm. of mixed emotions, etc. The same thing, dressing, uh, you know, it's one thing for a girl to be a tomboy. Mm -hmm. Why not? You know, uh, half the girls I hung around with were, uh, you know, uh, like to, to go out with boys and, you know, you know, do boyish things and push people off cliffs and things like that. And it seems like, they, you know, I hang, hung around with a lot of good, you know, stand-up girls. Mm -hmm. However, I must say in the same breath uh, that you can't just be, uh, you know, reinforcing the identity of the boy even though, you know, you're giving them a ball or you're giving them, you know, blue jeans mm -hmm. a dress and so forth and so on and, you know, the uh, short haircuts and everything. You know, at the, at the same time, 
uh, you, you, you just can't reinforce a male identity, again, this is going to cause confusions. So you put these kinds of things together, mm -hmm. and that generally has a package that we might call a resultant dysphoria. And, um, you know, the, the resultant dysphoria uh, normally mm -hmm. has to be therapeutically treated if it's significant enough. If it's a very weak dysphoria, normally the child, you know, as the Johns Hopkins study says, it'll just settle itself. The child will, by the time they're adolescents, mm -hmm. just go back to their regular uh, sexual identity um, without any therapeutic mm -hmm. counseling whatsoever. So um, uh, the, the point would be twofold. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, you should not encourage a person to do that. Um, you should not encourage them to, uh, to, to depend on a uh, sexual reassignment mm -hmm. surgery or um, gender-affirming care, that is to say, getting um, um, you know, hormones from the opposite uh, sex from the biological sex you're born with. So you, you basically you should not be encouraging that because mm -hmm. what happens is the child then, in order to get um, some relief from his or her anxieties, will then think, that's the solution. Mm -hmm. If I could just do that, then my anxieties would be over. I don't want to hear about anything else. I don't want to hear about any therapies. I just want it all to be over. Mm -hmm. And so uh, essentially, once they lock onto that, it's very difficult to sort of dissuade them. Mm -hmm. But um, I think in the Johns Hopkins study, and I'm not sure the percentage, but I know it was the vast majority of kids will transition back to their normal biological gender if they are not encouraged or given a promise of sexual reassignment surgery or gender affirming right. care. And, uh, and so they'll normally transition back. And, and that used to, you, you wonder, well, why is it that so many more kids now come in as transgender? Mm. And, uh, and uh, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's because they're getting encouragement to yeah. do it. Uh, from not, not just from doctors and things, from their parents. Right. They, the parents are the main people encouraging them to follow through on their plans. Once they then start fixing on that, mm -hmm. it's hard for a therapist to interrupt that expectation because mm -hmm. remember, the frontal cortex is not developed. The child is lock in and lock on. And so basically, uh, they, they see the, the so-called relief, the so-called you know, um, solution to the problem, and they move right toward it. So that is uh, right. your basic... Right. And, and by the way, you know, I just... I, I just wanted to say too, just as a final comment, sure. you know, I think you need to tell your um, intersect uh, uh, sexuality theory uh, maybe to the 14 countries that have reversed their um, their policies right. on uh, gender affirming care, uh, because uh, pretty much I guess they're not aware of your medical facts either. Right. Because um, again, I don't want to be sarcastic here, but. I mean, I'm telling you, there is a dearth of studies that would indicate there is a true right. intersect thing. The Johns Hopkins study and many other right. studies indicate that there is no such thing. Right. And I think you may uh, want to review well, that right. and look at why Finland or Great right. Britain or Sweden, et cetera, well, I are think reversing it was, their I think it was important because your first answer talked about studies and statistics. And twice this person used the word, it is my belief and I believe. 
And that's to some mm -hmm. degree the world we live in, this emotive kind of world, where because I've decided yeah. that something is true mm -hmm. subjectively, then, then it must mm -hmm. be true because that, that's how I feel about it. Uh, you know, kind of a mm -hmm. thing. The other thing, and, and not to get too specific, but there used to be, uh, you know, the phrase hermaphrodite. Somebody was born with both sets of organs. Oh, yeah. You know, those kinds of things. But yeah. that kind of thing is incredibly rare, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, not only incredibly rare, but normally it's uh, one of the, the genders predominates. Mm -hmm. And uh, generally a doctor will just take care of the, uh, uh, the difficulty mm -hmm. as uh, you know, when the child is an infant and and uh, sort of uh, give the dominant uh, sexual right. um, uh, sexuality the preference. Now, it, you know, at, at the same time, you know, there are some genetic aberrations, but normally mm -hmm. the doctor's going to look at what the chromosome is, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because that is going to affect every cell in that human body of that person. Mm -hmm. So if the baby may have some herma hermaphrodite characteristics, mm -hmm. at the very same time, if they have a, a, a Y chromosome, okay, you just give them uh, the, the male uh, um, uh, characteristics, the dominance. If they have two X chromosomes, you'd give the female mm -hmm. uh, the, the dominant. So, I mean, but basically that's, that's um, yes, it's very rare. Uh, but the chromosome will tell you. Right. Well, when they use the term, and let me just ask you, because that's kind of the medical term for that, they're using the word intersex. Is, is, are they talking about something that they think that's physically in that person, or it's just the way I feel about it? Because it, it tends to be used as if somehow there's some medical, biological backup to that term. Well, I've never heard it before, but basically I took her to mean mm -hmm. that um, there was something physically inside the person. Right. Right. But in point of fact, what I was trying to say in those biological studies uh, done by the two professors at Johns Hopkins, uh, no, right. um, there is no evidence for that whatsoever. Right. Yes. Okay, very good. Thank you very much, Maria, for sure. uh, sending that question and giving Father a chance to re-clarify and, and further explain the medical understanding. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, my father was an alcoholic and terribly abusive towards my mother and brother and me. After many years of counseling, I've been able to move beyond my past and forgive my father. However, as part of my healing, I had to cut ties with him completely. Now, the Ten Commandments say we are to honor our father and mother. How much honor do I owe my father? Am I required to let him back into my life? Gina. Gina, you are not required to let your father back into your life. You can forgive him from afar, mm -hmm. but you have no obligation to put yourself back into a situation which could be potentially abusive. Mm -hmm. You do not. So, in other words, by potentially abusive, I don't mean hitting you or something. I mean just insulting you mm -hmm. or bringing up things from the past to make that, you know, a group of memories flood into you. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you were abused by him, mm -hmm. but for all intents and purposes, you do not have to put yourself into a potentially abusive situation. And you should look at the word potential very liberally. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you think there's like a 10% chance or maybe, a, you know, uh, less, you still have the right not to put yourself in that situation. Right, absolutely. Uh, next up, dear Father Spitzer, the masses of my local parish are not very reverent. People talk in the church before and after mass. There are multiple ministers to distribute communion. People wander around the church as a sign of peace, making sure to shake hands with everyone. 
About 30 minutes away is another parish with a much more reverent feel to the Mass. Attention is focused on God instead of the congregation. A friend from my local parish said, I am required by canon law to attend and support my local parish, and attendance in another parish should be a rare occasion. Am I not free to go to the parish of my choosing? And this is Caroline. You may go to the, Caroline, right, right, you absolutely. may go to the parish of your choosing, absolutely. go to the other Mass, no problem. Right, absolutely. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, will time end at the end of time? Will we have glorified but physical bodies, which implies they take up space and time? Will we be able to say to a friend in heaven, let's meet next Tuesday and spend an hour together? How? Well, Hal, I don't know if you're going to be able to do the last thing of meeting on Tuesday because, of course, that has a sort of an earth regulatory uh, basis for the temporal um, uh, units that you're mm -hmm. talking about. However, uh, would there be some sense of the transition of time? Uh, in, in as much as we're not going to become angels, mm -hmm. there may be, uh, you know, in our future life, some sort of sense of transition mm -hmm. of time uh, in our consciousness and in even the way that we relate to a transtemporal entity like God. Mm -hmm. So for all intents and purposes, um, um, that's my belief. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that there might be some sense of time uh, in us. It's part of our embodiment. It's uh, part of the way, you know, the, the, it's not just a spatial restriction that embodiment has, mm -hmm. but we have a time succession element uh, in our embodiment. Uh, now, you know, tracing it back to a specific physical mm -hmm. time, uh, that may not be the case, but whether there is some sort of, uh, um, you know, temporality for us that, that uh, we're, we're not going to experience the eternal now as God does, or even as uh, the angels have an eighth eternity. Um, you know, we are probably going to have some sort of a sense of what we might call everlastingness. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that the, the time will never cease. Mm -hmm. So that's my view um, of that. It's a theological uh, view, obviously, which is not um, uh, a heresy. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but uh, you know, w you know what that time would be right. like. I really don't know. Um, you know, I do know though that. Um, you know, when people go to, um, they have these near-death experiences, they definitely have a sense of the transitioning of time. That's true. In right. the near-death experiences. Yeah. Right. That's so um, there you go. And that, ex and that events succeed one another, right. which would um, require some kind of uh, what we call a, um, you know, a non-contemporaneous continuum, which is another fancy way of saying time. Right. So, okay. Um, so that, uh, that seems to be the case. Very good. Dear Father Spitzer, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us not to worry about what we will eat or drink or wear. Instead, seek the kingdom and God will provide. Well, all those who are hungry in the world, surely some of them are seeking the kingdom. Why does God not provide for them? Jimmy. Well, Jimmy, you know, um, I think what Jesus was trying to say there is get your priorities straight. Mm -hmm. uh, he wasn't trying to say uh, sit down, do nothing, uh, you know, uh, and, um, and then God will, uh, will supply things because mm -hmm. there's just as many scripture passages which say, you know, um, be as uh, uh, sly as, uh, 
serpents, as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, you know, that doesn't mean we ought to go become serpents or something. So the, the idea is that, yes, of course, you know, God does in some sense, I don't want to quote the Protestant mm -hmm. adage, help those who help themselves, but definitely uh, you can, um, as St. Ignatius would say, you got to act as if mm -hmm. everything depends on you and pray as if everything depends on God. And I think that is a very sound, not only theological, mm -hmm. but spiritual basis for doing things. Mm -hmm. So that's my first thought. The second thought is the problem of deprivation and suffering is a complex one. It has a sociological underpinning. In other words, why is it that uh, some people in the world are starving? Are human beings partially responsible for that because we do not uh, share our technology with them or we uh, do not export uh, crops that might be helpful to them? Mm -hmm. Is there some co-responsibility uh, for starvation that's going on in the world? Uh, I would have to say that there is some co-responsibility because ever since we started going for the United Nations um, uh, sustainability goals, and we, and by the way, backed up by uh, St. John Paul II, mm -hmm. right, who very much wanted, um, you know, Catholics to participate in this, to make private-public par partnerships with this, to try and devote ourselves as much as we could. I mean, Caritas and Veritate, the beautiful encyclical of Pope mm -hmm. Benedict, same thing. Of course, we have to, in some sense, do what we can to alleviate, for example, um, uh, you know, the problem of potable water in the world. Everybody ought to be able to get water. Now, there's intermediate technologies that can be introduced and so forth, but are we doing as much as we can? Probably not, mm -hmm. but we're doing a lot more now than we were 20 years ago. Ever since those sustainability goals came out, we've really cut the potable water problem, I think, by 60% mm. in the world, uh, so that now, you know, 60% more people are not in that category of, um, of uh, having, uh, mm. you know, impure water constantly uh, and so forth. The same thing with starvation, the right. same thing with infant mortality, the same thing with uh, even distribution of food throughout the world. So even you know now our response programs like Jesuit refugee service, Catholic refugee services, and um, Catholic charities, and um, uh, well uh, any yeah. one of a number of um, uh, non-Catholic uh, um, NCOs, you know, or uh, NCOs of um, uh, uh, you know nonprofit uh, uh, groups are basically mm -hmm. uh, involved um, in uh, um, in in these kinds of things. So. Um, for all intents and purposes, right. uh, we do have to make some provision for, you know, like how many people do you know there's a, a disaster in the world? They, they will obviously write a check. Or, you know, sometimes if I have uh, some funds, you know, uh, I will write a check to a, a particular cause mm -hmm. uh, that I think is good or a particular uh, a group that I think uh, should have a, uh, um, you know, be supported, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, by uh, by my little paltry yeah. amount of money uh, that I can give to it. But the, the point is simply this, uh, we can do more and we should do as much as we can do. St. John Paul II was right when he got on board with saying, I support anything the Catholics are doing uh, to try and help 
get you know through the first ten goals you know about water right. starvation disease infant mortality etc uh, everything we could do we should do uh, is there, are there other reasons yes but mm -hmm. that gets me into a whole complex area of why does God allow an imperfect natural world mm -hmm. and allow suffering in the world right and I'll probably spare your ears uh, the time of it, but if you want me to do this in another program, you just write, <laughs> and I will turn your ears into hamburger. There you go. Uh, <laughs> and we'll talk about people having to watch the show multiple times. Uh, with that being said, yeah. also on these kinds of things too, I, and I, again, not to take away from our personal obligation, but much of the, at least today, the quote-unquote starvation that's out there is because of corruption in the local governments of many of these countries and places where a lot of the help is given but never gets to the actual people who could use the help. Oh, absolutely. I was involved in a charity once where, I mean, uh, just to get some materials to a country uh, off of a ship and get it through immigration, you practically had to bribe right. uh, your way to get you know materials that would be good for the population that was at risk yep. so what you know what are you going to say i mean right. it's just like uh, uh yeah there's definitely corruption out there right. and i mean some of that corruption actually causes wars and i don't have to get into right. it but the inequities are out there too right. and we can do a lot more to alleviate that and we are doing more to alleviate it but there's still more to be done right. and so uh uh, support your good Catholic charities and, like you and, said. and so forth. They do really, really good work. Most of those things that are problems like that are actually a less of a problem today, believe it or not, than the, you would gauge by the way the media talks about it. Uh, even in they talk about hurricanes oh, yeah. and storms and things like that, there's fewer people dying from natural disasters than ever before. Oh, yeah. I mean, so that's just that a That is true. That right. is true. Okay. Dear and infant mortality has been pulled in. But, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Dear Father Spitzer, We've got about, well, I guess, four minutes. I have a friend who is Catholic but believes firmly in predestination. He believes God created some specifically for heaven and others for hell. His proof are the words that Jesus uses at the Last Supper when he says his blood is poured out for the many. My friend believes this means Jesus did not come to save everyone. How do I respond, Leah or Leia? Okay, Leah, here's the deal. First, two, two things. I mean, um, you can't use Jesus' words at the Last Supper to do that. As you have pointed out co uh, correctly, the word is the many. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in Greek, that is tapalone. Mm -hmm. That's what you will find in the Greek text of the New Testament. Now, here, you know, there are two perfectly viable theories. You could treat many as many. But this could be a Semitism. Now, what is a Semitism? A Semitism means a Greek translation, something you would see in Greek that you would, it's very awkward. It never really occurs very often. Mm -hmm. And one such uh, expression is the many, mm -hmm. tapalone. Mm -hmm. So you think about that for a second. You go, well, I wonder about that. What could it mean? Mm -hmm. Well, the Jewish term for many is rabim but if you put the definite article with rabim rabim means all but if you have no definite article with rabim then it means many so it's the same word for many and all now jesus because it was a sacred rite 
may well have been speaking Hebrew, not Aramaic. Mm -hmm. Now, if that is the case, and if this is a Semitism, mm -hmm. uh, in other words, the many is really a Greek translation of, um, you know, a Hebrew expression for which there's no normal Greek usage, um, then if it really is such a Semitism, it means all, not simply many. Now, here is the case. Mm. You could say, well, the, the church translates it as many. Um, that is the case. But I'll just tell you from a scholarly point of view, you cannot um, make that determination as to you know whether it's all or many. And by the way, uh, for a while there, I think for maybe 20 years, it was translated as all. So you, you have to, and that was because the Jeremias view, the Semitism view was out mm. there. So whatever the case is, you can't say on the basis of a scholarly interpretation mm. of Jesus's words that he really meant only the many. Mm -hmm. Now, here is the thing, you know, are there people who are not going to uh, receive the Eucharist or receive the Eucharist unworthily and so forth and so on? Isn't it true that it really is the many and not all who are going to be saved? This comes into the point of when Jesus says poured out for, is, is, is he talking about his intention mm -hmm. to save everybody or whether everybody will want to be saved and put themselves in a position to be saved. Right. So I leave all of these things right. to liturgists, to <laughs> Hebrew <laughs> translators, and ultimately to the church to make an ultimate determination. Mm -hmm. But right now, the question has not been perfectly settled. So it could be many, could be all. Right now, you know, for all the 20 years, I guess we were saying all, right. it wasn't illegitimate to say that because the question is not settled right. yet. Uh, right now, we're leaning toward many, uh, but of course, that would be, you know, did Jesus intend to save all? I'm sure he did. Right. Uh, are all going to be saved? I'm sure they're not. Right. But, I, you know, that's just my viewpoint here. Uh, that hasn't been settled. But the point I'm trying to get to is you, right. you shouldn't make your case based on that. That's illegitimate, right. uh, just for starters. But the second thing. Um, uh, well, why don't is, we hold um, off on and, the second um, thing until we come back from okay. the break? When we come back from the break, okay. uh, we'll finish that second thing. Uh, Father Spitzer's cliffhanger. Stay with us. Much more ahead. <laughs> And today we are answering questions sent in by you, our viewers, catching up. But first I want to remind everyone about the National Eucharistic Revival coming up July 17th to the 21st, 2024 in Indianapolis, Indiana. This is something Mother Angelica would want you to pay attention to. Celebrate the power of the Eucharist with us. Go to EW10.com forward slash Eucharist so you can find out more and you can register through EW10 at a special discounted rate and uh, that would be great and now we'll t go back to father spitzer who's uh, breathlessly waiting to hit us with part two of his answer to <laughs> leah about predestination is your answer predestination uh, yet uh, to be done or is this something of your own free will go ahead yeah 
<laughs> this is of my own free will. But uh, you actually you hit the answer to the question. Leah, the answer to your question, your friend's question about, uh, or your friend's belief mm. about predestination, of course, that's a Calvinistic belief. Mm. But, you know, there's, um, you know, to interpret a passage of Jesus that is contrary mm. to everything he says about free choice. Predestination means that your freedom counts for nothing. And Jesus is saying, time and time and time again, not only are you free, you're free to choose, you're responsible for your choices, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole of Jesus' moral theology, <clears throat> everything he teaches presupposes free choice. Mm -hmm. So to say that Jesus could possibly imply predestination to the exclusion of the relevancy of free choice is absolutely contrary to scripture in every respect. Mm, right. So I have to tell you, your friend, alas, is um, way off base, and to even imply that Jesus was a predestination person would right. mean that he was an anti-free choice person and believed that free choice right. counted for nothing, when practically the entirety of his moral theology not only presupposes it, but reiterates it. So uh, anyway, I leave you with that. Right. Well, in a world which doesn't like responsibility, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that's out there. Yep. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, I'm confused by yep. the interaction between the divine nature and human nature of Jesus. As God, he knew all things. As a human, he had to learn. As a child in the temple, people were astonished at his knowledge. As an adult, he was able to foretell his passion. Did his divine nature reveal things as needed to his human nature? How else would he know of his coming death and resurrection? Fran. Well, Fran, you are um, partially correct, mm -hmm. but here's the thing to, um, to look at. He has a divine personhood. Mm -hmm. Now, you might remember that the nature, right, is like the power of a being. Mm -hmm. So he has uh, a divine power and he has a human power. Now, human powers are quite finite, whereas his, his divine power is infinite. Now, as you know, you can only have one infinite nature, one infinite power. You can only have one infinity, because if, if you have two infinities, then one of the infinities would have to be somewhere, be something, have something that the other one hmm. did not. The other one did not have it. The other one did not have that power. It was not in that place. It was not that thing. It did not have that characteristic. But the moment you say those nots, it doesn't have this power, doesn't have this characteristic. It's not in this place. What are you saying? It's finite. Well, that means your second infinity would have to be a finite infinity. That's a contradiction, and that's a no-no. So the first thing is, is you can only have one real infinity. So there's only one divine nature, and the three persons of the Trinity, then, are making use of that one infinite divine power or nature. Mm -hmm. Now you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, what's a person and how is that used? Mm -hmm. And I think Jean Gallot has a very good theory of that. Uh, he basically associates personhood with self-consciousness. Mm -hmm. So right now, right, I am aware of this glass, 
but I'm also aware of my awareness mm -hmm. of this glass. And so as I look at this, right, I all of a sudden come back on myself and I get myself. And not only that, I can get myself getting myself. I can actually be aware of being self-aware. Mm -hmm. And in this way, human beings have what we call their own inner universe, mm -hmm. their own inner domain, and they can juxtapose it to the outer domain where they can try to bring the outer domain under the influence of their inner world, their inner universe, or they can try and invest their, mm -hmm. outer, uh, their inner universe in the outer universe. Now, what, what's so relevant about that? Well, there are three self-consciousnesses that are making an unrestricted use of the one infinite nature, the one infinite power. Now, wh who becomes incarnate? Well, the infinite nature doesn't become incarnate in, in a finite nature because that would be a contradiction. Then you'd have a finite infinite nature. Erg, uh, right? That's not going to work. <laughs> so what becomes incarnate? It's the self-consciousness of the second person of the Trinity. That second self-consciousness, the one who calls himself the beloved one, he is the one, that self-consciousness, while he stays in his divine nature, that one, uh, that uh, second self-consciousness uh, goes into another nature, mm -hmm. a human nature, and then that personhood is restricted by that nature. But it doesn't restrict the personhood that's using the infinite nature. It's one person, mm -hmm. but you might say, well, how can one person then be uh, conscious through an infinite nature and conscious um, uh, of, through a finite nature at the same time. Well, the only analogy I really have is when you're in a dream state. Mm -hmm. Like when you are in a dream state, your one self-consciousness is not only in your uh, b body, in, your, in the outer world, it's also in dream world. Mm -hmm. And your self-consciousness, when it's in dream world, actually thinks that it is you know, subject to the properties of your dream world. If you can fly, you can fly. If you're going to drop to the ground, you're going to drop to the ground. If the safe is going to drop on your head, you get the whole point, mm -hmm. right? It's, you think that the safe is going to drop on your head, and so forth and so on. Now, if you've ever had this experience where you're sitting there, you're in a dream, and you're in dream world, and all of a sudden you go with your same self-consciousness, wait a minute, mm -hmm. this is a dream. Right. Now your outer world self-consciousness, if I can call it that, is aware of being in an inner world, um, a dream world uh, uh, that your self-consciousness is also occupying, and you sort of, for a split second there, you're aware of both. So what can we say? We can say that the outer, the personhood, the same personhood, that when he's using his, his um, infinite nature, of course he's aware of everything that the personhood, the same personhood in the human nature, in the finite nature, is thinking, doing, feeling, etc. It's the same person, and through the infinite nature, the infinite nature can know the finite nature, but not vice versa. Mm -hmm. He's true man. He can't be become, as it were, um, uh, you know, in the, his human nature, 
partially divine. Mm -hmm. So yes, the human nature does not have access to the divine nature, except insofar as it will be revealed to him, right? So, he, you know, he, you know, um, through the, the, the divine nature uh, itself, the person in the divine nature can actually reveal something to his very same person in his human nature. <clears throat> Could reveal his origins with God, <clears throat> his heavenly Father, as Jesus seems to have a very <clears throat> privileged revelation of that and a very privileged awareness of not only who his father is but a, an intimate awareness of what his father feels uh, towards him and uh, how his father uh, relates to him uh, in a way that of course goes way beyond what a, a, a person um, you know that does not have divine personhood but mm -hmm. only a, a human personhood right would know so <clears throat> there he does have these kinds of special revelation <clears throat> but you cannot make him into a human being that has lots of divine powers mm -hmm. so he does have the divine power to heal by his own authority so that has been given him uh, he has a special power in his human nature to do uh, raise the dead mm -hmm. uh, to exercise demons he doesn't have to beg God for that every time he uses that power it comes from within himself as if his human nature has been endowed with this divine power very specially and he has divine revelations uh, an awareness of the divine that has been given to him as well but you can't say then that well how come Jesus didn't skip all the grades and in one split second take hmm. everything uh, that's in the whole of Torah and learn it how come he had to go and learn the prayers from his mother and learn the law from his father and study all the scrolls and do normal human things because in most respects Jesus was a you know was well first of all he was completely and perfectly human mm -hmm. but he had some special gifts that he had been given but in most ways he had not been given a special gift uh, to overcome his humanity right. his humanity was there pure and simple so that's I know it sounds like a complicated right. answer but that in a sense it is uh, the answer uh, to your question is that the second person um, the second self-consciousness is what becomes human mm -hmm. but of course yes uh, he is given some uh, divine powers uh, but basically he is for all intents and purposes he is a human being and so he learned gradually uh, most things that human beings learned. Mm -hmm. He has privileged um, uh, awareness of God his Father and the relationship with God his Father. He has privileged powers, uh, you know, to raise the dead and heal, etc. So I hope that mm -hmm. is helpful, but of course this is uh, some of the toughest uh, theology there is. It's a really good question, but that's my best answer to it. Go back to that analogy mm -hmm. of when you wake up from your dream and right. just think, oh, the divine person can know what's going on in that human, um, uh, in, in the personhood's uh, incarnate uh, nature, mm -hmm. but not vice versa. Right. And that's yeah. the answer to your question. And I'll remind everybody the show is available on demand and on YouTube. So if you want to go back over that particular question as well, 
you were happy to watch that <laughs> that one again. Uh, number 18, let's see, dear Father Spitzer, did the apostles spend all their time with Jesus or did they continue working from time to time? Some at least had to have families to support and the fact that they went back to fishing after the crucifixion seems to indicate they maintained their boat. Surely they could not have obtained all they needed from the benefactors for three years. Gavin. Well, of course, we don't have absolute uh, knowledge of you know what was going on there, but clearly the apostles did maintain contact with their families mm -hmm. uh, if they had. We know Peter certainly had uh, a family. Uh, obviously, he has a mother-in-law and so forth. We presume that maybe some of the other apostles might have had families as well. Uh, again, we're kind of going beyond the objective evidence mm -hmm. uh, when we see this. But, I mean, uh, we probably presume that they did. Certainly, they would have maintained contact with their families. Uh, but some, you know, how families are. When a, a, a male dies uh, in the family, they have all kinds of provisions for how the family is to get along. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they have brothers, normally big families, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the brothers will take in. Uh, family members or help out with family members and of course I'm sure Jesus uh, had means to uh, help the apostles provide as well mm -hmm. but yes I do think uh, Jesus did have uh, significant benefactors I don't think he spent time like a university president going out there <laughs> raising funds all the time but I do think he did have significant benefactors, and I do think that took care of the provisions needed by the apostles. And if there were some emergency, we know that Judas would help himself to this, um, you know, uh, strong box or whatever they the had purse, that, right. that was, uh, you know, the purse that held the, uh, uh, the, the donations for the poor. Uh, we know that uh, it was certainly there. And of course, I'm sure provisions were made by the families of these people. I mean, there, there's like a whole set of laws. If X doesn't take care of Y, then you know, then Z has to take care of Y until such time as mm -hmm. X can do that, and so forth and so on. There's all these prescriptions. Uh, you live in a society that didn't have all these social programs. Right, right. Basically, families did it. And if families didn't do it, then that was really a problem, you know, especially if you had a widow mm -hmm. who had children and the widow did not have, uh, you know, brothers or something of that nature uh, who could be helpful uh, to her. Uh, then, of course, she would almost be stricken with, uh, with poverty unless somebody would help. Right. Okay. Very good. Dear Father Spitzer, in Genesis, God says we, quote unquote, shall create a mate for Adam. Mm -hmm. Does the Jewish Torah use the word we or I? Does this scripture support the Trinity? What do our Jewish brothers say about this? Walter. Well, uh, this, boy, Walter, this has been a, uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, definitely a point of controversy in uh, translation um, uh, of, the, uh, of the Hebrew text. Uh, for all intents and purposes, the we translation uh, is a pretty good trans, a literal translation. Mm -hmm. um, does the we, uh, you know, see, the term we does not necessarily mean a plural. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it can mean a magisterial we, you know, or like, uh, uh, you know, when Queen Elizabeth says, right. you know, 
uh, we shall do this. She doesn't mean they're two Queen Elizabeths or somebody. Right. She's just the using an authoritative we, right, or say, a, right. a royal we or a magisterial, right. a teaching right, right, we. Right. We think that this is the case. Well, that just means a community of scholars. That could be a plural, but you know, you can see that the, the term we can oftentimes refer to a singular. Mm -hmm. So uh, was that applied to God in Hebrew? That, you know, that uh, as it were, uh, magisterial or royal we uh, would be applied to, uh, uh, to God? Yes, the answer is yes, it was applied mm -hmm. uh, to God in, in many other places. So the first thing is, is you don't wanna infer from this a plurality or mm -hmm. the Trinity. Indeed, I doubt very, very seriously. I mean, these texts would have been right in, you know, they're, they're made, uh, you know, um, uh, you know in, the, in the scriptures and written in the scriptures uh, as being recorded from Moses, whether they were or whether, um, you know, this is, uh, a, you know, a, a Deuteronomist who's uh, clearly trying to imitate Moses, his influence is there. And one thing about Moses was, he was a monotheist, mm -hmm. and uh, not only was he a monotheist, but he surely did not leave room uh, for a trinity, mm -hmm. uh, per se. So, um, you know, that, uh, that kind of a, a thought, um, I would probably put that out of your mind as, right. a, as an interpretation uh, that leads to, okay. you know, seeing the trinity in the Old Testament. I don't think it's there. Okay, very good. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, when Peter became Pope, he was still known as Peter. Other early popes also kept their names. When did the practice of a pope selecting a new name begin and why? Well, actually, Peter, uh, as you know, was not Peter's old mm. name. Right. Uh, Peter's old name was Cephas. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and uh, Jesus was the one who uses the pun in Greek, right? So he's taking um, Peter's Aramaic name and he's then saying, and upon this rock, Mm -hmm. Right, uh, um, I will build my church. So it's a pun. Kephas can also mean rock in Aramaic. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, essentially, um, uh, Jesus is using this as, as kind of a, a, a pun um, to say, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Well, uh, the, the problem, you know, is um, that uh, Kephas and, uh, you know, you have a feminine, uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, Kepha you know, uh, for rock. So uh, basically, Jesus has to uh, uh, change the, the word, you are Peter Petras, and upon this Petra, this rock, I will build my church, and uh, the, uh, you know, the gates of the netherworld. But Jesus changed Peter's name. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, it wasn't just Cephas. His prior name from his parents was Simon. Mm -hmm. And of course, his name is Simon Bar-Jonah. Mm -hmm. So now we see we've got two transitions here. Mm -hmm. We've got first, Jesus is going to change Simon Peter's name to Peter. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, it's going to change it to Kephas, which becomes translated uh, as Peter mm -hmm. uh, in the Greek. So now you say, well, wait a minute, who can change the name of a person? Well, it have to be someone with greater authority than the parents that gave, uh, you know, the name, at least equal authority uh, as the parents who gave the name to the child. That's a sacrosanct, uh, you know, uh, uh, choice uh, uh, to, to select the name for the child. And so, uh, you know, when he, he's moved from Simon uh, to Peter or to, to, to Cephas to, to, to Peter, 
I mean, once that happens, you can pretty much see that, um, that Jesus would have enormous authority mm -hmm. uh, to do this, but the only one who had the authority to do this uh, in the, the group of apostles. So did, did Jesus change Peter's name? Oh, yes, he did mm -hmm. uh, from Simon. And of course, it gets later translated into the Greek. And then, of course, uh, you know, with um, you know, the Greek translation mm -hmm. can't, comes this custom of switching names uh, and taking names. It actually comes from Jesus himself mm -hmm. changing uh, the name Simon to Kephas, which becomes in Greek Peter. Uh, okay. Petros. Okay, very good. About three minutes to go. Dear Father Spitzer, the King James Version and other Protestant Bibles conclude the Our Father with the sentence, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is not found in Catholic Bibles. Mm -hmm. Why the difference, Tom? Well, Tom, it's not found in the Protestant Bible either. Uh, it was just added, um, you know, um, uh, to the prayer mm -hmm. uh, by uh, various uh, Protestant people. Uh, so uh, the King James Version, um, you know, of the Bible, as far as I know, never made that addition. They did make some other additions, um, you know, uh, for example, uh, when Luther added the word uh, alone, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in the, um, uh, the passage on the Romans, I think it's, uh, well, it would be Romans 3, uh, 20, 28 maybe, uh, he, you know, Jesus says, you know, um, uh, it is uh, not by uh, works of the law, mm -hmm. but by faith. Well, Jesus' view of faith you know, you know, Luther adds the word alone there, faith alone. So, uh, you know, he, he changed the context right then and there mm -hmm. of what Jesus had intent, I mean, of what Paul had intended. Mm -hmm. Paul intended was to say, it is not by works of the Mosaic Code mm -hmm. that one, the Mosaic Code, the law, that one is saved, but by faith. Mm -hmm. Now, faith in Jesus Christ includes, of course, adherence to his moral teaching. Faith in Jesus Christ includes, of course, participation in his ecclesia, in his church. So, of course, the, the idea of, you know, that uh, no works would, you know, that, that, that somehow faith precludes all works, that was never intended by Paul whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It was uh, certainly, Paul was trying to say, look, the, 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 the Mosaic Code's not going to save you. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's redemption and justification not only, um, you know, supersedes the law, it fulfills the law. So you're set. You, you don't need the Mosaic Code in addition to, you know, Jesus' redemption. That's mm -hmm. what Paul is trying to say. But when Luther put in that word alone, you can see what wound up happening, right? I mean, basically, then all of a sudden people thought, well, Jesus is opposed to all works, not, I mean, Paul is opposed to all works, not just works of the Mosaic Code, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the, the works uh, required by the Mosaic Code, but all works of every kind. Mm -hmm. I mean, which, of course, uh, Paul never had any intention to suggest. So, yes, though, that was an addition. Mm -hmm. And um, we don't, and obviously, no Catholic Bible has alone, uh, you know, sit uh, there in Romans uh, uh, 3.28, I think it is. Uh, don't quote me on it.
Right, and obviously the earliest Bibles that are out there were Catholic Bibles, as it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, yep. the same thing, I think, with the phrase. Right. I think they think that might have been something that was added by a particular monk or something who was a scribe, and you know oh, somehow got uh, thrown, into been. The, thrown into the uh, oh, kind of uh, you know and maybe, got picked up. Maybe it up did get thrown into the King James up, version. But, but the earliest version. But the earliest version. I don't know if it's in King James, but the earliest versions of the scriptures, what they found, it wasn't there. So we know it. Originally wasn't no, there. No, no, no. So very Not good. Not in the manuscript text. Right, no. absolutely. We're uh, just out of time, and so we need your blessing, Father. Oh, very good. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the good Lord, uh, who truly in his wisdom has prepared this place of love for us, who has come into our midst to participate in our life and to show us the way and to redeem us completely and fully, send you his spirit, the spirit of redemption, so that as you participate in the sacraments of the church and following our Savior's teaching, you will not only inherit the kingdom of God forever, but lead all those you touch to that same kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank Go you. in peace. Oh, we even better. Thank you, Father Spitzer. Always a pleasure. We shall see you next time. And, of course, Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are always available and very popular through our EWTN religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. Next week, we get back to the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church, Father's wonderful book, as we're moving through that. In addition, EWTN's Bookmark, a show I get to do with wonderful authors every week, uh, premieres on Sundays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. You may want to check that out. Also, Father Spitzer's Universe is available as a podcast on our EWTN Podcast Central, wonderful audio podcast especially. And go to EWTN.com forward slash radio, click on podcast. You can listen to Mother Angelica, Father Spitzer, all of our radio programs, and not only our great programs, but the best of the rest, as we call them, other wonderful Catholic podcasts, all free, all available, 24-7, EWTN Podcast Central, when you're looking for the best in Catholic podcasts. And when you're looking for the best in Catholic programming, join us next week for Father Spitzer's Universe right here on EWTN. See you then.